Hello and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, which we expect to be late July, early August, we'll be resuming the regular weekly podcast with a storm of swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode, Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking a little bit about historical narrators and uh, the unreliability therein. Um, but before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you something I've been asking a lot of my guests on uh, the podcast lately. And that's how, how did you get into A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones? Oh, my God. For this, we have to go back to the Dark Ages. Uh, <laughs> I have been... I've been obsessed with the Wars of the Roses since I was 13 years old. I happened to find a fantastic historical novel by the late, great Sharon K. Penman. Hmm. Um, and after a couple of years when I was in college, I happened to uh, run into someone at a party who told me about this book trilogy that was, quote, the Wars of the Roses, except with dragons. <laughs> um, that sold me just very, very quickly went out and I bought a Game of Thrones. Took me about two tries to get in, but as soon as I got to the end of Brand 2, I was completely hooked. Of course. Um, this was 2002, so uh, I read a Game of Thrones, I read a Clash of Kings, and at the end of A Storm of Swords, I blew into uh, my local borders and demanded to know <laughs> where Book 4 was, and the employees promptly laughed at me. <laughs> so, I have been uh, in the... Well, I don't. Uh, I didn't really know about the fandom at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. That was not something I discovered until some years later, um, when I stumbled across Westeros.org and promptly got very intimidated and left. <laughs> I getcha. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really until uh, until sort of I got on Tumblr that I started really getting into uh, getting into the fandom and getting yep, into the meta. Same. Mm -hmm. um, but I had, uh, but I've, I read all the books. I actually met George at a, uh, at a Feast for Crows signing in Dayton, Ohio, of all the places. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then of course, uh, Dance with Dragons came out in 2011 and the Game of Thrones started and uh -huh. all of a sudden these books reading for years, everyone was talking about them and people wanted to know what I had to say about them, which was even more shocking. So I've, uh, I've read, I uh, have written a bunch of academic articles about A Song of Ice and Fire. I edited a book on the Thrones show, specifically on the fandom for the Thrones show in 2017, um, which is very interesting to look back on now because that was kind of the height of the Thrones fandom. Uh -huh. um, and then the final two seasons happened and that's a whole different story. So it's... <laughs> Um, I'm wondering if they're going to ask me to put out like a new introduction or something. Sure, just to clarify. <laughs> so I've taught it, I've, uh, I've written articles on it, and also as a hobby, because this is what I do with my spare time, I write fan fiction. So there it is. I always uh, like hearing about which of the weights people were around for, you know, which, which of the weights in between books and when they entered in terms of the fandom and technology too, because of course... You know, the uh, online, the fandom has just exploded since the early aughts, which was when I, I first read the books as well. So what, yeah, uh, uh, Sharon Penman. So what were those, uh, what, what, what were those novels like? I've heard her name, but I don't, I don't really know much about her books. Uh, well, the one that I read 
was uh, The Sun and Splendor, which is the only novel that she's written about the Wars of the Roses, but it was her first book. Um, it is like 900 pages long. Wow. And uh, she, there's this great story around her writing it um, where she had written three quarters of the manuscript, left it in her car, and it got stolen. Oh, um, no. And so she had to go back and write the whole thing from scratch. This was in the 80s, so she'd typewritten everything. Um, so she had to go back and literally write it from scratch. Um, wow. But well, it was published in 1988 and um, just catapulted her into a, a career as a historical novelist. And she died in January of this year. Yeah, unfortunately, no, it, uh, she, uh, her uh, most recent book just came out last year. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but it's definitely on my list. Um, it's about the, I think the period between the second and third crusades, I want to say. Um, but it should be really interesting. Okay. Um, I am looking forward to reading it and seeing kind of, um, uh, what she does with that period. Cause there's, there's so much. And speaking of unreliable historical narrators, <laughs> my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have dipped a toe into crusades historiography, but I am not necessarily willing to go too much further than that. It's, it's a lot and you need to speak at least four languages and I'll bet. Yeah. Not to get lost in there for sure. So I know you, people who do it, and it's, it's amazing. <laughs> were you into uh, fan fiction prior to to doing a, a Song of Ice and Fire fan fiction? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Fan, fan fiction that that I have been writing since possibly I was five. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of the you know how in elementary school sometimes they'll have you do little books for projects. Mine yes. were always kind of fan fiction on some level. Um, the, uh, the one that I'm, the one that I'm fond of, uh, of using as an example is one that I wrote in mm. sixth grade. That was a crossover between Charles Dickens is a tale of two cities and Emma Orksey's the Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, I'm immediately um, intrigued. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Unfortunately, the actual text has been lost to time, but I have a vague recollection. That's that history was, for uh, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, like that. At, it was it was supposed to be a play, which made it even better, because at some point, like three people get beheaded on stage. There was of a course. sword fight. Um, How elaborate. At, I love it. <laughs> yeah, my, my teacher sent it back to me. She said, you know what? I, I applaud your ambition, but nobody can stage this. Like, this is not possible. <laughs> I said, well, well, you never down from an early age. Ah, well, yeah. Well, to be fair, a couple of years later, they did have they did end up producing a Broadway musical based on the Scarlet Pimpernel where people did get beheaded on stage. So I feel like I was ahead of the zeitgeist. Right. Where's your where's your royalty check on that one? They're they're ripping you off. So then. So what uh, what other did you when did you start getting into more like. um writing fan f- fiction about like kind of genre stories and stuff did that did that crop up before song of ice and fire yes it did oh it absolutely did it uh cropped up first um shortly after this this experiment in uh, in 19th century <laughs> fan fiction yes, um i switched over ironically to broadway musicals and was writing okay. Absolutely terrible fans of the opera <laughs> fiction as a teenager. Oh, there's such a uh, rich like, history of that, though, of gloriously terrible, terrible phantom fiction. Oh, so yeah. You're in good Although company. One of, one of my favorite novels is Susan Kay's Phantom, which is published fan fiction and is legitimately wonderful. Like, it is very, very good. Oh, well, there um, we go. Okay. So, as soon as I read that, I said, okay, I'm not writing in this fandom anymore. I'm going to move to someplace else. Um, so, it's been done. I went, okay. 
So at that point, I went back to the Scarlet Pimpernel, wrote more fan fiction there, eventually tripped over Harry Potter when I was in, I think, late undergrad, early grad school. Um, Because it was around the time that the fourth book came out. That's my recollection. Because I remember Mm -hmm. going to a release party for the fifth one. Um, And before that, like, I think my brother and sister, like, my sister handed me the first four books over Christmas break and ordered me to read them. And I did. Um, And I immediately had many, many questions that the books (laughs) were not going to answer. So I said, okay, (laughs) fine. I will answer these for myself. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah. So everything that I wrote between, I think it was most, I think it was about 2005 and 2009 um, was my sort of Harry Potter fan fiction period. And it was lots of just strange esoteric things about minor characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized that was my niche. So I went from Harry Potter fic into Shakespeare fic, into Arthurian, into oh sort of historical fiction vignettes and then eventually 2000 like I held off on A Song of Ice and Fire for a long time I wanted to but I knew I had read I followed George on live journal so I knew Uh, of course Um, I was actually there for the giant um fracas where he and Diana Gabaldon and uh, had all of this nasty stuff to say about people writing fan fiction Diana Gabaldon likened it to rape it was it was a whole thing and it got very Uh emotional. Uh Um, But I remember sort of watching that fallout and going, okay, I am, I will respect George. I will respect the wishes of the author. I will not write fanfic in this, in this fandom. But then 2011 HBO announced that they were making an adaptation and my Uh early modernist in me said, you know what? Uh There's already a variant text. Yep. So what does one more matter? I'm not making any money off this. George can't care. What's he going to do? He's not going to know. So I hear you. Um, yeah. So I finally decided that uh, I was allowed to write uh, Aswath fanfic. And, and since then, easily more than 200,000 words of it, longer than wow. my doctoral thesis. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> well, well, I understand the George's desire, you know, to, to, ins- to inspire creativity rather than imitation and others. There's the, the, what you said about, you know, questions that don't get answered and being able to explore it on your own and the, the kind of, being able to explore niche and minor characters in a lot of interesting ways. That's inspired a lot of kind of the, the interesting uh, fan fiction and other stuff I've read about this series. Cause there's, there's just uh, areas that, that George touches on, but doesn't explore deeply and that's fine. But then, you know, I would think you'd want to open the door for people to, to, to take the banner and run with it. I wonder if, I wonder if his view has changed because the last record that, cause I've, I've actually written about this from kind of an academic fan studies perspective. Um, It's interesting that he hasn't said anything specifically since 2013. 2013 was the last uh, reference that he's made to it in an official interview that I've been able to find. Um, And I'm very curious to see if his stance has changed over the course of Game of Thrones, seeing, okay, this is how, this is what happens when we get a commercial adaptation of this unfinished text how does that compare to what's coming out of the fandom and what's not being paid for? Like if I, I mean, granted I'm not George, but if I were not, I'd be curious. I would want to know. Like, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want to read like the North remembers or something like that, but go and find like someone who's written, I don't know, 3000 words about Sierra Seastar or something like that. Like, Oh, well, what, what did they have to say? 
so when you write about a when you write fan fiction, you write about a song of ice and fire. What what topics draw you, and what characters draw you? Oh, it's almost all historical. It's it's almost all mm-hmm. like historical stuff. Fire like these days, it's almost all fire and blood. Sure. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And there is so much in that book, and there's uh, it drives me crazy sometimes. Um, <laughs> But uh, for the main series, um, with one or two exceptions, I tend to sort of hang out in the Roberts Rebellion era or slightly before. Um, and I, the biggest thing that I've written is, a, is this ridiculous, gigantic Roberts Rebellion prequel that clocks in at like 155,000 words or something like that. Yes, indeed. Um, and I, after writing, after getting that out of my system, um, I wrote just a, a couple of sort of standalone pieces, like some stuff about, again, like Brendan Rivers and Sierra Seastar, things about Kristen Cole and the Dance of the Dragons. Um, but this one incredibly meta thing where I was annoyed, like after reading Fire and Blood, I got a little bit irritated. Um, and I can get in, and I will get into the reasons for my irritation later on. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, in response to that, I came up with this idea of a book of ladies in waiting, mm-hmm. kind of like the White Book of the King's Guard, except okay. the ladies in waiting for all of the queens, and how it kind of got passed down from queen to queen, and nobody knew about it because none of the meisters would bother with that kind of a history; they wouldn't care. Um, and it somehow finds itself in the hands of Sorella Sand. And she uses it to apply for copper links at the Citadel. So it is partly sort of incredibly pedantic, dry (laughs) academic prose. And it's also like quasi-chronicle narration of various ladies-in-waiting. And it's taking forever to write because it's three different writing styles and epistolary and all of this stuff. Access to all those different competing voices, that's something I've always loved in history and also novels that try to encapsulate history or get at how history works that's always thrilling it's it's one of the things that i gained a new appreciation for when i reread bram stoker's dracula as an adult Hmm. after going to grad school i said this is fantastic look at all these different styles and i mean i to some extent yes it's like 80 percent train time train timetables but like i i love that about it you've got all of these different styles and all of these different voices and Yes, you want to strangle Abraham Van Helsing, I always do, but um, it's such a fun book, the way that it's put together, it's like a puzzle box, and I I love those kinds of narrations so much, and I've come to appreciate them a lot more um, as an adult. Yeah, and you you know, bringing up modernism, that's one of the central ideas in modernism, especially when literary theory is that mm. you, you want to combine and clash different narrators and different voices and different styles, some of which might seem like they're making fun of themselves at points. And that's, the, you know, see what see what insights you produce by that. So uh, so who are, who are your favorite uh, characters in Song of Ice and Fire? Oh, I mean, my first my first was Catelyn. Like she hmm. was the mm-hmm. first one who grabbed me like the second I got to her chapter I was like okay now we, we can do something with this um like it wasn't that I didn't like Bran I love Bran <laughs> I get you yeah Catelyn was who hooked me mm-hmm. um and she remained my favorite character that was actually one of the things when I first stepped into the fandom um I was kind I was really taken aback by how much people seemed to hate Catelyn I was like but yeah. why she's awesome why how could you not love her um 
And so first it was Catlin. And I have also like ever since the first mention of Dorne in the opening in A Game of Thrones, I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. what is this? Tell me more about this. And he didn't. (laughs) Right. And finally, in A Storm of Swords, Oberyn Martell shows up and I'm like, yes, what is this? (laughs) Tell me more. Um, And then he died. And he died within like four chapters of Catelyn. And so the second half of A Storm of Swords was bad. (laughs) Like I got to the end of the Mountain and the Viper chapter. And that was the one time that I had to set, I had to set the book down and I had to go away for Mm. a couple of hours Mm -hmm. and just process everything. But um, yeah, so Catelyn, Oberyn, eventually when um, when A Feast for Coast came out, um, I remember the sample chapter, reading the sample chapter, and the sample chapter was Cersei, and I thought, oh my God, this is going to be incredible. And she was. <laughs> she's terrible. I like, I love her, and she's terrible, is, is basically my relationship with Cersei. I love her, and she's terrible. I love writing about her. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't love, especially love writing from her perspective because it kind of makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. But. I love writing about her like her. She has this very particular brand of fuckery that is so interesting to write about. Um, And I think that George, like, I don't know if he's necessarily intending all of it, because I read a lot into Cersei that may or may not actually be supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's so much going on that's pushing against all of the other POVs in, uh, in the novels. And I love to kind of dig into that and see what's going on there. Cersei is such so interesting as a POV to me, because I agree. It feels more intuitive on George's part. Whereas like Catalan, I feel like George, like that's like an intellectual project on George's part. Like I'm going to, I want to tell this story from King Arthur's mom's perspective and have everything kind of filtered through that. And it's, I think it works really well. And Cersei, yeah, or Brienne, I think, is also like George has a specific idea in mind. And with Cersei, it feels like very almost like associative and and just like it's I think there's it's it's interesting because there's a there's a there's a lot to read into it. And I've read what, what, what you've some of what you've written about it and what other people have written very well about it. And just for me, you know, knowing and having learned less about about gender and about history and about how writing impacts that, it just feels it's, there's just such a visceral impact to it still, where it's 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 uh, there's there's just like such a such a rush that for me is almost it's almost divorced from her actions or even from the plot. It's just like this the the sense of being in her head is powerful. And I can see why that would be such a such a live wire for fanfic writing. Because it's such a dipping into that mindset is it just feels less um, I don't know safe is the wrong word but it feels like it feels like there's there's just something freewheeling about the way that uh, he writes her that is really interesting. Yes, there is. That's absolutely right. And she's almost like the pole. It's interesting. She's almost the polar opposite of Catelyn in that way because Catelyn's narration is so controlled. It's so mm-hmm. yeah. Um, she's caught like even when she's falling apart she's all she's seeing it's almost like she's seeing herself fall apart um except in that last chapter in that last chapter in in the storm of swords that's when it all just comes apart but up to that point halfway through the red wedding um catelyn has always been very much in control of her entire narrative and like even when events are outside her control her interpretation of them is always overlaying Mm -hmm. um and with Cersei, it's 
it's like the id is kind of pouring out of her in a way that you don't see even with her siblings, like even Jamie and Tyrion. Although Tyrion, I would argue, once you hit a dance with dragons, um, Tyrion has almost kind of picked up on a lot of that. I wonder if uh, partly George's writing of Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons may have been influenced by his writing of Cersei in A Feast of Crows. That's a really good point. I bet if we, I bet if they had been combined as originally intended, you know, into the same books, I bet that would stand out. And it's a, a lot of feast and dance feels that way. And it's yeah, I don't. It's like with Cersei, like I, and this sounds like a criticism, but I don't even remember what happens in her chapters a lot of the time necessarily. You know, plot wise, it's not really about that. And it's yeah, with Catelyn, as you say, her viewpoint is filtered over events, and with Cersei, it's like her perspective like erases events. Like she just like put her character just like pushes it out of the way. So that when the high sparrow takes her down, that's why it's so such a shock. Cause it's like, what another person is having an impact that's not supposed to be allowed. Two chapters in a dance with dragons are so spectacularly good. Like yeah, I agree. The, the walk of shame chapter is a masterpiece. Um, and like, I just remember reading like what the first time I read that I was just absolutely floored by how good it was um like it's terrible and on the but he actually makes you feel for her and i was so impressed it is while never never changing the things that made her unsympathetic in the first place like those those never go away but then her pride becomes the only thing she has and it's a great example of uh you know this is an overbroad rule but of like you don't the character doesn't need to be likable so much as motivated and you know you need to get that motivation across to your audience and if you do that then you can hook your audience no matter what they would think of the character as a person and that that walk chapter yeah and you've already been kind of primed that because you've already had a bunch of theon chapters by that exactly exactly in dance it's so similar in that way because theon also a character that for very good reason you want to you know exile beyond the stars but then yeah but then you see what that punishment looks like and then you're trapped in his head and that um then that transforms your perspective and that's what's interesting is then like theon hasn't really changed cersei hasn't really changed it's your perspective is what's changed Mm -hmm. and you've been funneled through that through the pov and so yeah that leads us to talking about about narrators like a lot of the terms i've been trying to talk about with people lately uh, like unre- I feel like unreliable narrator is a kind of a term that's tossed out a lot without necessarily investigation of what exactly it means and how it applies. So how would you define an, an unreliable historical narrator? Well, I would start with the uh, I would start with the caveat that all narrators are inherently unreliable. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the problem. Right. Well, the fact is that as human beings, we experience events. And mm-hmm. when we look back on those events, we want to understand them. The way that we understand them is by putting them into a narrative. And that narrative could be as simple as first X, then Y, or it could be something more complicated like X followed by a bunch of other things and then Mm -hmm. eventually Y um, and so on and so forth. But anytime we are encountering history, we are by definition um, several several degrees removed from it. Um, The question is, Are we talking about something that happened 50 years ago where people might still be alive who can talk about it? Or are we talking about something that was 500 or 5,000 years ago? And the further back you get, the more unreliable the narrators are going to be simply because without, simply because every writer is working within their own context. And the further you are removed from the context of what is being written, the less you are able to immediately understand it and Mm -hmm. immediately interpret it. 
a uh, just as kind of a, a general example, um, one of the one of the texts that George has pointed to as an inspiration for him is uh, a a work of Roman history by Suetonius called The Lives of the Caesars. Um, only some of these, uh, Suetonius was only alive for some of the reigns that he talks about. Um, a lot of them are things that he is pulling from gossip, he's pulling from rumor, he's pulling from other people's histories. Um, and his version is always the most scandalous. So-and-so was mm -hmm. definitely sleeping with his mother. So-and-so was definitely murdering all of his family. Like it's <laughs> all of that stuff. And it's great. You, It is so much fun to read. Um, it's basically Real Housewives of Rome, but <laughs> it, it is absolutely that. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, you cannot take it at face value. Like you want to, because you really want this like soap opera stuff, but you can't. Like even now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about this because there's this exhibit on at the British Museum uh, about Nero. And mm. it's kind of, the, the, the notion is rethinking Nero. What does it mean? Uh, like, are, are, we actually, um, are we actually being unkind? Are we actually being um, unjust to assume that Nero was a, megal a megalomaniac and insane and, uh, and homicidal and uh -huh. all of the other things that he's accused of being? Um, I haven't seen the exhibit and I don't necessarily know. There is kind of this, uh, you do actually have to, uh, anytime you're approaching any historical text, you have to think about not just the period that it's describing, but the period in which it was written. That's what I was talking to. I was talking a little bit with, uh, with Shiloh about this, that what that's, that's always fascinating me about history is that there's, there's no still point from which to observe things. You don't, there's no neutral perspective that you ever get to adopt. So you're constantly having to, to look through the lens as you say, of, of your own uh, changing period. And that calls that, that constantly calls into question the idea of authenticity and what it is that we're, we're looking for when we say that something is authentic, whether that's a, an objective thing or whether that's a, a calculated emotional reaction. Like uh, there's um, uh, Orson Welles, the, the great uh, American filmmaker and actor. His last movie was called F for Fake. And it's the pseudo documentary about art forgers and about a forgery in general and uh, talking about how often uh, forged paintings fool experts and, and what, what that says about authenticity. And one of the people involved says that, you know, the question is not whether something is authentic or a fake. The question is, how good a fake is it? And that, that's a question I think that can lead you in interesting directions in both history and art and what, the, what we're talking about here when they cross over. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So how do these, like when we, uh, uh, how do these questions apply to like George R. R. Martin? Because I know he's talked about, as you were saying, he's talked about the, the inspirations and historical realism of his work before. What do, you, what do you think of what he's had to say about that? I mean, a lot of this came up in the, uh, in the conversation that you had with Shiloh, so I won't repeat too much, but I am very much in agreement with her that uh, George R. R. Martin, he, he clearly loves history and that's awesome. And mm -hmm. the book, uh, and Aswath is so part of the immersive nature of it is how real it feels. Um, but one of the things that I think he is a little bit less uh, great on is taking into account the fact that the history that he was reading when these books were written has changed significantly. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, when he was writing A Game of Thrones in 1996 um, or 19, uh, the early 90s, let's assume. 
Um, there were so many prevailing notions about medieval Europe that are quite simply wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, like okay. he, I am not like, uh, for example, George R. R. Martin, he says he's being historically accurate by including uh, graphic rape, graphic violence in, uh, in the War of the Five Kings. Absolutely, that's fine. But he also, in a similar vein, uh, claims that uh, people of color couldn't be in Westeros because they weren't in Europe, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know for a fact that there were plenty of people there were, that Europe was actually fairly multicultural and definitely more so than uh, than pop culture would have us believe. Um, and the fact is that the study of history took root in the 18th and 19th centuries, which is the same period in which colonialism was on the rise. Mm-hmm. And part of the narrative that was being spun by all of these texts talking about the the, the chivalry and the courtliness of medieval Europe um, was a means of creating a distinct European culture um, that could then be placed in uh, that could then be placed in a superior position to cultures from elsewhere. Yeah, and that that's that's what always interests me about about realism as this shield and justification for any move you make because it it's always false to a degree and it just seems unnecessary like i feel like the much more honest description of george about the the graphic rape and sexual assault in the series is i'm trying to show when how when chivalry is a front and how people who you know express those values really behave and i'm showing it often from the perspective of children because they've been lied to and they've been raised to believe that this is a world where that can never happen that's really why that's there george not because you were trying to be having fidelity to the period, because as you say, he doesn't do that in other areas. So that's, it's clearly not really what it's about. And these are, these are all decisions being, being uh, built around artifice of some variety. And I, I feel like when people fall back on realism at the justification, they are I don't, maybe unintentionally implying that artifice is bad when it's like, that's no, that's all this is, is variations of artifice. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, but we applaud the kind of the detail and the immersiveness of Tolkien's universe and no one is pretending that Middle-earth is real. (laughs) Right. That's what's fascinating in part about it is he's describing a bunch of trees and then one of them is alive. I I always, that little shell game with, with, uh, with realism is, is always interesting. And it also just, yeah, assumes that, uh, that the, that the default is correct. Like you're saying that George is just relying on the historical texts of his time. And like so much about the story comes just back to how long this has taken. <laughs> like if the story was over already, if he'd finished it, you know, in the early to mid aughts, then even the false assumptions would be at least consistent within the story. But now, you know, the, the, everything has moved on around him. So that's just fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that I have noticed is, I mean, having sort of looked at his work from an academic perspective, it's interesting seeing kind of the, the, the gradation and kind of the, the there's a process of how this, uh, how these trends tend to move. You see them first in kind of academic histories. Then eventually, if you're lucky, um, the theory catches on in a more mainstream sense and you start to see it in popular history. And that's when it starts to move into fiction. Ah, that's that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, and, and and I've noticed this because at least in part because it frustrates the hell out of me. <laughs> um, I'm uh, especially when I was in grad. So when I was in grad school, um, Philippa Gregory, the historical novelist behind a number of absolute terrible, terrible novels, uh, put out one about the Wars of the Roses, 
and I felt compelled to read it, even though I knew it was a bad idea. <laughs> and I was, I, I, it was one of those where I threw the book across the room. I got so mad. Um, and the, it was another one that was based on these incredibly ridiculous, outdated assumptions of how women exercised power in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. And I got so angry because she, she blames everything on witchcraft and she makes witchcraft real. Yeah, of course. And it's so dumb and it's so lazy and it's, ah, it made me mad. But she, she was drawing on a very clear um, trajectory of historical scholarship that was claiming that these women were always rivals. They never allied together. They only ever wanted to take each other down um, when the reality is so much more complicated. And that trajectory you mentioned, I think, is key because what you benefit from presenting the past a certain way, whether monolithic in thought or in race, is you then you get to pretend that no decisions were ever made and that like the arc of history is just like this gradual, inevitable thing that just happens. The g- grand arc towards liberal sensibilities is, you know, that's that's the kind of a convenient lie we like to tell ourselves. And, and we've been telling ourselves that lie for, for centuries. Like for the, centuries. the only reason the Renaissance exists is because uh, the thinkers of the Renaissance is because the thinkers of the 16th and 17th centuries were trying to differentiate themselves from the people who came before. Um, sure. And especially in the 17th century, uh, they wanted to talk about how great they were in comparison to the Dark Ages. Like the Dark <laughs> Ages as a concept didn't even exist until the Renaissance. Right. And now we just, you know, you accept that as a given because it's what you're told as a kid. And that like, and it's frustrating because that, that periodization, like you have to do it to a certain extent because otherwise the past is just this chaos where you're just like, what happened? It's all formless. Like you need mentally you need to structures and we like narrative as it's our favorite structure but it's so easy to get seduced into forgetting that it's something you're imposing and you start thinking of it as a thing that exists in the past and that and it doesn't and it doesn't and that's what and then then so later when thinking develops you fall into the trap of no that must that's a fabrication that's you're imposing a pattern on what i know to be the truth yeah, yeah. I mean, to to be irredeemably topical, we're seeing it right now in uh, yep. in U.S. politics. The, all of this nonsense about critical race theory. Um, the yeah. the thing that annoys me the most about this entire argument is that it assumes there's a neutral position, which there isn't. Right. It implies mm-hmm. that that critical race theory is the only active interpretation going on, and that the whitewashed version, the literal whitewashed version that we have had uh, since. Well, the founding of the United States <laughs> is factually correct, which it isn't. I mean, even even the founding fathers knew it wasn't factually correct. The irony always strikes me that the people making that argument are always the one who always the ones who profess to believe in independence and free thought. And it's like, you sheep, this is just what you were told when you were five and you've never questioned it. What's independent or free about that? Absolutely nothing. It's very, very silly. So, oh, you mentioned so you mentioned uh, Suetonius' uh, *Lives of the Caesars* as being an uh, inspiration on George and how he thinks about narrators. So that's that's a good example of a of an unreliable historical narrator. What what are some other good ones? Well, my my sort of uh, the the place where I tend to live is the um, is the 15th and the 16th centuries, and there are a ton of examples from that period. Uh, Machiavelli's *Prince* is one of my favorites. I love that mm-hmm. book. It is fantastic. It's so well written and the advice is legitimate it is Mm. even reading it today you can look at it and you can say oh actually i i can see that that makes perfect sense 
And the thing is, like everyone talks about how Machiavelli is this bloodthirsty, evil kind of guy. He's not. Mm-hmm. Like his advice is not evil at all. Most of it is just common sense. Um, the problem is people implement it poorly and people interpret it poorly. They mm-hmm. look at Machiavelli talking about Cesare Borgia as this um, as this kind of amazing man who uh, who was po- who had the potential to unite Italy, only to uh, to have it all go wrong because of bad luck. Um, and it seems as though he's admiring uh, that Borgia is willing to murder all of these people uh, to <laughs> power. But you can, but if you actually read the text, you can tell that he's he's like, well, he does this, but he also does these other things, and he's better than the other people around him. Mm-hmm. He's not saying that what Cesare Borgia is doing is correct. He's just saying he's doing better than everybody else, and he's may already made clear that the standard is really, really low. Um, yeah, apparently, fifteenth century, late fifteenth century Italy was not the brain tr- was not uh, the brain <laughs> trust, at least as far as politics goes. Yeah, that talking about when when theory hits the mainstream, Machiavelli seems like a prime case of how stuff gets distorted and just like reduced to essentials in passing. Um, and I definitely I definitely see that crop up in in descriptions of Song of Ice and Fire politicians all the time. Yeah, I uh, I had uh, I had a lot of fun when I was teaching Renaissance history. I got to teach it in <clears throat> 2013 and 2018, and in both classes, I had at least one paper about Tywin and at least one paper about Tyrion, um, and both of them eventually came to the conclusion that Machiavelli would not approve of Tywin Lannister even a little. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and part of the reason why is. Machiavelli goes out of his way on a number of occasions to make clear that, yes, sometimes violence is necessary, or I mean, he argues that sometimes violence is necessary, um, but you should not be cruel. Uh, If you are cruel, you will lose power because people will hate you. (laughs) And Tywin definitely does not follow that advice. (laughs) Not one bit. And he's so, he's so like... I mean, the thing I always feel like with Tywin is he's he pretends to have this like, you know, honest, hard, bitten view of the world. But he's so dishonest about what he does and that engenders resentment. Like there's that scene in the council session where in Storm of Swords, I think, where he says Oberyn is coming to get justice for his sister's killer. And Tyrion looks at the other lords in the council and thinks, well, are any of you going to say that, hey, Tywin, aren't you the one who presented the corpses of those kids to the king? And he's like, they look frustrated, but they're not going to do it. And so, like, that's, yeah, that's that, I think, uh, crude Machiavellianism, I think, is what a couple people have called it with Tywin, where it's like, he's got got the surface of that, but, like, there's long-term erosion there. And I'm, I, you know, I don't, I uh, don't know a lot about Machiavelli, but from what I do know, he was concerned with that, that kind of long-term erosion of respect and power that can set in if you're too cruel or just, or just capricious and arbitrary, which happens with the Lannisters a lot, too. Where everyone, even the people who don't hate them are going like, you're not reliable. Like, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And like, that's just, it's just no good for business. It is not. It's absolutely not. And, and the thing is, Machiavelli was a Republican. Like, he was, uh, uh, he grew up in the Republic of Florence. And Florence, and he watched Florence become an oligarchy over the course of his life. And The Prince is written towards the very, very end of his life, right when he was retiring. And he was writing it for uh, Lorenzo de' Medici. Um, not not Lorenzo the Magnificent, but like his, but I believe his grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was writing it like it's 
on some level, you sometimes wonder when you're reading it if the entire thing is meant to be tongue in cheek. <laughs> sure. You know, Machiavelli okay. has spent his whole life hating the Medici family. <laughs> I mean, he'll work for them, but he's clearly not a huge fan. And it comes out in a lot of the other things that he's written. Um, but, and, and you're reading The Prince and you're thinking, okay, the advice is good, but why is he giving it to this guy? <laughs> like, and maybe it's because he already knew that uh, that, that particular Lorenzo was fairly incompetent. I don't know. Right. You need it. You need it carefully. But yeah, I mean, that's, so that's another thing that can get distorted by time or just by, you know, uh, the, the, the telephone game of it going from academia to mainstream media is, yeah, elements that are, are satirical or, or deliberately exaggerated. Like, um, I know a lot of stuff like uh, uh, what Ovid wrote, some of his stuff was was making fun of, of Roman elites and some of that just gets treated as, as, as neutral. And again, like, you know, there's no neutral perspective in history and even authors themselves in the present deliberately inflate things, let alone what they do unconsciously. So like, and, and same thing with applying to fictional characters. Like there are people who just take Tywin's justifications at face value. Like when he uh, defines the Red Wedding by saying, it's better to kill a dozen guys at dinner than 10,000 in battle. And I've yeah, seen people forgetting just that take, all those soldiers died outside the twins. We just, <laughs> just the previous chapter, we just saw this happen where Arya was outside watching the tents burn and thousands of guys scream. Like, and they didn't have a chance to fight back. But it's, but like Tywin knows that like, no one's going to sing about those guys. Not if I have anything to do about it. Not, you know, I can, I'm going to shape history in this way. I'm going to try to shape history in this way where it becomes a dozen at dinner and nobler because it saved him from war. And as we see, you know, it doesn't hurt that he, he dies shortly after, but he loses control of that narrative pretty quickly. <laughs> and that, the, the Red Wedding isn't always connected to him, but it's seen as an affront, affront to gods and men. So he definitely loses that narrative. Oh, he absolutely does. And I mean... The uh, one of the other examples that I like, from, which is great because it is actually uh, almost exactly contemporary with Machiavelli, it's Thomas More's History of King Richard III. Hmm. And for years, there are so many books that rag on Thomas More for writing bad history. And the problem is that Thomas More wasn't writing history, <laughs> despite the fact that it is called the history of King Richard III. It's not a history. It is a satire. It is a political satire. And it's magnificently well written. And like if you act, it's one of those, again, where if you're actually reading the text and you're looking at the way that this narrative is constructed and how disingenuous all of the narrative voices are, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's clear that this is a guy who is not want, who does not want this narrative to be taken seriously. He wants to use it as a as um, kind of a didactic text to teach his reader how to read critically. Like, what any of these people are saying all of them are liars mm. um and it's it's a fantastic text it is unfinished i at least believe that it's unfinished because he was moving a bit too close to the actual henry the eighth uh and his uh and uh, that trajectory eventually got his head chopped off so uh my pet theory is that it never got finished because he didn't want to offend the king only uh -huh. he ended up offending the king and losing his head anyway so. <laughs> well that's the that's the that's the risk you run with uh with, with with parody and that you know that um that always feeds i remember there was a ton of conspiracy theories when uh when stanley kubrick died that he he'd done it because his last movie was when it was, was going to expose the illuminati so some of that stuff can get crazy 
But that's always, I mean, that's the the power of, of satire is that it can go unrecognized. And sometimes that's unfortunate because then you, you just, um, you look at it straight ahead. And that um, that discontinues, the, I mean, that just ignores the fact that everyone has everyone has an angle and everyone's writing it for a reason. Yeah, because even the first time I read it when I was in undergrad, I remember trying to take it seriously. And every time, like every couple of pages, I get tripped up. I'm like, am I supposed to be taking this seriously? I don't entirely know. Um, but so many of the secondary sources that I was reading, so many of the biographies and the other studies took it seriously. Um, and finally, it wasn't until, I guess, historians started reading literary theorists and figured out he's actually not being serious. Um, and uh, finally, people have started explain, people have started accepting that, no, you you can you can't he doesn't even get the dates right. Like you can't <laughs> you cannot take Thomas More at face value. You can only take him as a reflection of whatever political ideas were circulating at the time. Although apparently he was proven right on the hunchback. For years, people have been leaning on this, like, oh, the hunchback was nothing but propaganda. There's <laughs> like, it, he, he definitely didn't have, and apparently, apparently he did. But it also was like, both of these things can be true at the same time, because one of the reasons why um, all of these uh, pro-Richard people were coming out with the uh, uh, with these defenses saying, no, he couldn't possibly have been disabled because uh, he couldn't possibly have had a disability because um, uh, because he was fighting. He, he, there are records of him fighting. He was a battle commander. He used to, he was running, he was riding raids into Scotland until the years, uh, until a couple of years before he died. He died in battle on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, both of these things can be true. Like he had scoliosis and he was still a battle commander. Like that didn't stop him. He just did it. Right. And we just have the assumption that he wouldn't. And so everyone, everyone has their baked in assumptions and you got to, you got to do your best to unlock them. And that's so hard because the people in the past were doing the same, you know, we're doing the same thing. They weren't the, the keepers of the truth any more than, uh, than we are. Yeah. Think, they, they just decided yeah. he was a hunchback and that made him evil. Right. Exactly. They made that association. And we see some of that happening with, uh, with Tyrion. When I think about like, uh, yeah, you know, popular stories on history and what could have inspired George there, obviously uh, Shakespeare is, uh, is what comes first to mind. So how does how does this uh, how does all this apply to the Bard? Oh goodness! Well, so Shakespeare's history plays are amazing. I love them. Uh, they are anyone like people love to rag on them for not being historically accurate. To which I say that's the point. They're not mm-hmm. supposed to be. Uh, Shakespeare. I like to describe Shakespeare as the Tarantino of his time. <laughs> He was writing for popular audiences. Shakespeare was writing popular entertainment. If Shakespeare had been around, if Shakespeare were around today, he would probably watch Game of Thrones. Sure. Uh, like this is anyone, like I, I get very frustrated with the sort of high culture, low culture argument about Shakespeare because as someone who has studied Shakespeare for years and years, like I look at what he writes and I think, yeah, this, this is this is entertainment. Um, yeah, it's faster, I, more I intense. Yeah, I, I challenge anyone who wants to talk about Shakespeare being nothing but high art to sit through all of Titus Andronicus. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Exactly. As his problem plays, especially, so to speak, definitely. I think uh, uh, make that clear. He's going for the gut, often, literally. And I uh, and I am of the opinion, at least, that I, I love opening Shakespeare classes with Titus because my students never see it coming. Sure, it's one of the least regarded. That's that's great. I remember that that was the first play that I taught. The first Shakespeare play that I taught was Titus Andronicus. 
That's wild. And boy, was it a trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I walked in on my first day and I said, okay, guys, uh, there are going to be many trigger warnings for this first play. No kidding. I advise you to be aware of them. Right. You're going to get like a, a rights of spring walkout. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is, this is what he was writing at the beginning of his career because he wanted to get noticed. And it is not a coincidence that the history plays especially the first tetralogy, which is the one that I think inspired George the most. Although mm-hmm. I would, I agree with, uh, I think it was Shakes of Thrones who you had on Lauren, um, yes. who was talking about so many beautiful echoes of Richard II in, uh, especially in some of Ned's later chapters. Absolutely. Um, uh, and especially his final chapter in the, in the Black Belt. But um, I think that for a lot of the big set pieces and especially a lot of the characters, the first tetralogy is where you need to look. Um, and that is the three parts of Henry VI and Richard III, which were all part of Shakespeare's earliest set of plays. Um, these are the early 1590s. Christopher Marlowe was either mm-hmm. still alive or had just died. And he was all about the sort of blood, love, and rhetoric. Like, gotcha. to, to mm-hmm. steal from Tom Stoppard. His, uh, uh, his plays are, uh, you think Shakespeare is extra. Marlowe is extra, 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 and also gay. Um, and it's, uh, you can see Marlowe's handprints all over Shakespeare's early plays. There's a new theory that, um, he and Marlowe actually co-wrote the Henry VI plays, or at least some subset of them. Um, and you can really see it in these giant soliloquies and these huge set pieces. Um, and George, you can clearly see him kind of building on, picking up a lot of these different plot threads, especially Mm -hmm. like characters like Richard III and characters like Margaret of Anjou. And Margaret of Anjou, I see kind of, in some ways you can see uh, elements of her in Catelyn and in some ways you can see elements of her in Cersei. Um, in Shakespeare's version of her is a murderer. She kills people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she conspires, she plots, she is unfaithful to her husband blatantly. Um, she stabs Richard of York on stage and eventually has to watch her entire family get murdered and comes back as a revenant in Richard III where she walks around cursing everyone. <laughs> I, I, I love her character in Richard III because she is a living embodiment of the power of history. She is the only person who is walking around and reminding the audience hmm. whenever a character, particularly Richard, wants to rewrite all of the events of the previous play saying, this wasn't my fault. I definitely didn't murder this person. I definitely wasn't here when this person died mysteriously. Um, There's always Margaret at the back saying, nope, nope, you were there. That was you. That was definitely you. Uh She also throws out the best insults at Richard. (laughs) Thou bottled spider. (laughs) Thou vile infections. It's all Uh of this great stuff. She's got these these lines that you can absolutely chew on. but as far as uh, as far as history goes, really, really not accurate. Like Margaret's biggest scene, one of her biggest scenes is the one where she murders Richard Duke of York, her rival for Henry the Sixth Part Two. Um, this is the very opening of Henry the Sixth Part Three, and historically, she wasn't even there. She was no, she was in a different country. She was in Scotland when that wow. happened. But it was such a compelling story. And, I, and I've actually, my, my PhD thesis, one of the things that happened was I actually traced the evolution of that story because I started with Shakespeare and worked my way backward. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Shakespeare picks it up from a late 16th century chronicle known as Hollinshed's Chronicle, but it was actually written by a gigantic uh, group of guys. Okay. Um, <clears throat> printers, scholars, historians, antiquarians, they all sort of bow- came together in London in the, uh, in the 1560s and 1570s and wanted to write a chronicle that represented not just uh, certain parts of England, but represented all of England. Hmm. Um, under uh, under the uh, under Queen Elizabeth, and they wanted to sort of rewrite this uh, this giant English history. So one of the things that happens when in Hollinshed's Chronicles is a bunch of earlier chronicles are stitched together, and sometimes there's commentary in between them. You ha- so you'll have three different versions of the same event placed side by side, and afterward there'll be a paragraph uh, purportedly written by Hollinshed that says, "Well, we have these three versions." You take your pick. Decide which one you think is true. I'm not going to offer an opinion. Choose your own adventure. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. choose your own adventure. Which which interpretation do you like? Um, so the version that Hollinshed provides uh, for um, for this particular scene is he offers one version where uh, Margaret is there, a second version where Margaret isn't there, but one of her henchmen. Uh, takes Richard of York, puts him on a molehill, puts a paper crown on his head and taunts him uh, <laughs> as the, like, I believe, as the Roman did to Christ is the quote or something like that, um, which is something that he pulled from a monastic chronicle written 100 years earlier, um, completely out of context. He doesn't provide any of the surrounding information, which includes that Margaret was in Scotland at the time. Um, and then Shakespeare takes this and he says, oh, you know what would be better than having Margaret Kenchman taunt to uh, taunt the Duke of York. Let's have Margaret do it herself. So that's the version that goes down in history. And to this day, we have references in novels, even in biographies, not not any of the recent ones, thankfully, but we will (laughs) even have references in biographies to that time Margaret murdered Richard Duke of York. It's like, no, she wasn't even in the country at the time. (laughs) It's all just like the the limits of research running up against an infinite chain of liars. It's great. Seriously. Yeah, (laughs) I know that was a really long and drawn out example. No, I mean, that's that's what we're dealing with. It's 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 great. It's, you, you just keep pulling up by the roots because then, yeah, I mean, like, because like I have a I have a stereotypical image of in my mind of like a humble monk toiling away in a room with a single candle and everything that guy writes is true. You know, like that's kind of just the impression that I got, uh, you know, from a kid. But obviously, you know, even that guy is writing for a reason. Oh, yeah. And some of them like they like some of the monastic chronicles, like you'll be re- they'll have just a completely dry account like so and so the king stopped by this weekend. And also this guy was a total dick about our taxes this year. Like, <laughs> of course. They or, have an interest. Yeah. Or my my personal favorite is like you'll have sort of the, the, the city chronicle and then there'll be a random line about and someone found a giant fish on the riverbank today. <laughs> Moving on. Like, <laughs> what was noteworthy? The other, so another contemporary of Machiavelli and Thomas More is less well known, and I think it's a shame, partly because it's a little difficult to find his work in translation. There's Hmm. one kind of public domain translation. I don't know how good it is because I haven't really looked at the, I haven't looked at the original and the translation side by side, but um, it's at least available and it's on the the Richard III Society's website. Um, But his name is Philippe de Comines. And Hmm. he was originally the right-hand man to Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. And at some point, we don't know why, and we don't know what prompted it, but at some point, he decided to defect to the Duke of Burgundy's rival, the King of France. 
and he mm. took all of his state secrets with him. Uh, <laughs> after, and so he worked for the King of France for another, I think, 10 or 15 years. Then that king died. Uh, after the death of that king, he was banished and all of his estates confiscated, again, for secret reasons. Um, finally, he turns up in Italy at the very end of his life, um, and he writes his memoirs. And his memoirs are a trip. Like, he spills <laughs> all of the tea in these memoirs. Um, but it's basically what might happen if Barris the Spider wrote his memoirs, survived long enough to write his memoirs. That's wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. But one of my favorite, uh, but one of the other things is that the only reason we have any surviving letters from him, which we do, um, is because the people he was sending them to disobeyed the written instructions in the letter to burn them after they were read. Oh, well, good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, apparently some of his people were just not very good at obeying orders. <laughs> and we rely on them to this day. That's wild. So how do how does all of this apply to uh, a song of ice and fire and to fire and blood? Because I know you were mentioning that earlier. How does how does George himself handle uh, these unreliable historical narrators? Well, in the main series, he does it in a very straightforward way, just by giving us uh, the the revolving POV. Mm-hmm. And for something like, for instance, Robert's Rebellion. Um, you have these tiny little scraps of information that you pick up, whether it's from Ned's flashbacks or from Catelyn's flashbacks or uh, or Cersei's or that speech of Kevin Lannister's at the very end of A Dance with Dragons, like you've got, or the Night of the Laughing Tree story. You have so many different uh, scraps that you can pick up on. And then outside of the main series, you also have The World of Ice and Fire. And I remember when this came out in 2013, and I thought the section on Robert's Rebellion I both wanted to strangle George and also just applaud him because it was (laughs) such a great, like it was so disingenuous. Oh my goodness. Like every reference to Tywin Lannister in that book is just, oh God. Like they have their, he is, Meister Yandel is a Tywin fanboy or he is getting all (laughs) of his information from a certain Tywin fanboy who is the Grand Meister. Yeah, because, man, just everything, all of those little snide hints, and especially in that last bit, the fall of the, the, fall of the Targaryens, mm-hmm. um, where they're talking about how Tywin shows up at the city, and, oh, suddenly there was a riot. Like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> or the, uh, the bit where it's like, you know, maybe Princess Elia murdered her own children. What? No. Mm-hmm. Just No. <laughs> And um, so I, I loved that bit. I thought that bit was, that was just beautifully done. Um, and, uh, and what I also liked is the, the, the double dedications at the very beginning, where it's first dedicated to Robert and then to Joffrey right. and then to Tommen. And there, there is, this, is, this is real. Like there, there are a couple of chronicles that were just, that you could literally see they, they erased one name and they put in another and they changed a couple of the references in between. Um, but uh, but that's but that's very it rang very true to me and I really enjoyed it. But the text where this really comes out for me is Fire and Blood, mm-hmm. and part of the reason why is similar to the way that the World of Ice and Fire is written. Fire and Blood is conceived as a compilation of chronicles and a kind of um, a a history written much much later. It's supposedly written like 150 years after the latest of the events that it's just, or maybe like at least 75 or hundred years after the latest of the events that it describes, um, or at least fire and blood part one. Uh. And so 
the the author is not speaking from living memory. He is not really necessarily speaking to people who uh, who have these events in living memory. He's relying on other texts, and he often makes references to these different historians, um, offering his own opinions on which ones are more reliable than others, and so forth. Um, and like it's, I I find these I find Fire and Blood both. Incredible! Like I find it wonderful. I mm-hmm. I have this fraught relationship with the way that George's hand because on one hand it's exactly the kind of like nerdy metafictional epistolary stuff. I love it. I love that meisters are passively aggressively subquoting each other and being <laughs> pissy about each other. And I love how everyone is like mushroom is definitely not telling the truth, but we're going to include all of his stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, like that stuff i think it's wonderful and how and how just nothing ever matches up like you've got used to saying one thing about the dance of the dragons you've got mushrooms saying another thing about the dance of the dragons and neither of them has any like you cannot right. find anything yeah. between them but on the other hand my god the misogyny gets old it's the mm-hmm. child marriage the sexualization of girls i just can't I, like i want to ask one narrator who's not a dirty old man (laughs) can we have one like shake it up a little bit yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i know and there are plenty of really really good essays about this like i know that uh i think um uh on tumblr i've run across a bunch of them that i've uh, that i've recommended to people um especially right after fire and blood came out there were a lot Uh of people coming uh, who produced very very good meta kind of talking about how like, yes, you can make the claim that it's narrative voice, but also why? Like, it is George making a narrative choice to use this narrator. Why is he doing that? Um, and why is he doing this disservice to all of these fascinating female characters that we only get these really tiny glimpses of? Um, like, where are my where are my women historians from Westeros? Like, right, not, right. And I'm not just talking, like, I, I love the bit for Corianne Wilde, don't get me wrong. Like on the <laughs> sure, one sure. hand, I hated it, but on the other hand, I loved it because it's just all of the, di- the the variant text, the different versions, how the none of them, how none of them work together. Um, I had a student write the most amazing paper, kind of analyzing that bit from Fire and Blood, and it was it was magnificent. But like, where where is Christina Bizon? Where is Isabelle de Bingen? Where's Marie de France? Where's all of these? Where are all of these women who were writing in this period that George claims he's being true to? Um, why why are they silent? Why aren't why don't we get any of their perspectives? Um, and partly, yes, it's the Meisters, it's the Citadel, but why does it need to be that way? I guess. Yeah, you can. I wish he'd uh, uh, flexed his uh, creative muscles a little more broadly in that regard, especially since it's outside the main series and this is kind of a sandbox and a room to just play with perspectives themselves even more than the events. So you'd think you'd think there'd be a more than more than one note to hit because I I, I think yeah, like as you say, there's an internal justification for it, but it just it's just kind of repetitive after a while, especially given how long Fire and Blood is. So I think you know, I definitely I, I agree with that critique. I like how Fire and Blood kind of explodes a lot of the things that we saw in that a lot of the sort of bits of Targaryen history that we get in the main series, um, like uh, how things are actually more complicated with Aegon and his sisters. Things are more complicated with Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Um, but it was, there comes a point, someone actually made a list of all of the underage 
uh, all of the underage marriages that happen in Fire and Blood, and it just goes on and on and on mm-hmm. and on. And just like, oh my God! Like even just even if even at the worst, if you look at medieval Europe, it was never on that level. Right, it just right. Wasn't like people were not marrying off thirteen-year-old girls on the regular. Like that was an outlier. I catch it. Yeah, no, I've heard that before. Uh, so yeah, so Fire and Blood is an example of of interesting but limited approach to historical narration. I was thinking maybe like a a, a better example of that, or just like a a really fascinating example of that universe is how Robert's Rebellion is handled, because that's such that's such a rich topic of history and backstory where there's a lot we know but a lot we don't and everyone has such emotions attached to it that you can't really fully trust any of them yes yeah i i absolutely like that that was the as as i as i mentioned before like that was the Mm -hmm. uh the bit that really grabbed me as a as a fan author as a as a fanfic writer um the and and it's it's fascinating too from an academic perspective. I'm actually working on a uh, a book chapter now that's looking a little bit at uh, at how those narratives are constructed, not just within the text but also by fans. Um, but the the way that he kind of places all of these breadcrumbs throughout the novels and he puts them in all of these different perspectives. And you have just enough information that you mm-hmm. don't entirely trust any of the accounts. <laughs> and it's right. great the way that that's set up. And I feel like Fire and Blood almost discourages that kind of reading um, hmm. because, okay. because it's presented as just one narrator. Even when he's incorporating other narrators, Gildane's voice is still kind of preeminent and putting that bit larger framework on top of everything. Um, I like... I like reading for the multivocality in uh, in Fire and Blood, but it's not always immediately apparent. I don't think. Um, That's interesting. I, I, yeah. the, I guess the only reason I say that is because I have had people comment on fanfic saying that uh, like you're you're wrong. So like Mushroom was here on this day. I'm like he says so. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He's like he says he was. Does that mean he was? Well. And what I really love about the Roberts Rebellion stuff is that it shows this this deep need to make sense of things, and the the like that that getting through your present day requires this constant shaping of the past, and that it shows how history is something we all engage in, whether we're you know whether we're academics or not, whether we're reading an explicit historical text or not. You're always shaping that stuff, whether we want to or not. A lot of it's unconscious, and our stories fit into that that larger story and you it, Robert's rebellion makes you realize that you're doing it too. Cause you, you have to fill in the gaps to make sense of things. And you don't know if you're right necessarily a lot of the time. And none um, of the characters really knows if they're right either. Like the, yep. the, why my favorite, I mean the, the night of the, I cannot wait till you, uh, till you guys get to the night of the laughing tree chapter. Cause that, that yeah. is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. And it's so rich, but, and and where it falls in the narrative, it's kind of right smack in the middle, isn't it, of the, the books that we have right now. And it causes you to immediately look back and want to chase down all of those little references that you saw to Robert's Rebellion from before. It's like, oh, is he, like, you got the red snake, you got this, you got that, you got the maid with the laughing eyes, you got the, like, um, all of these different characters, and who are they, and how are they connected? And, and of course, later on, you, you find out who... Um, who John Connington is and who Richard uh-huh. Monmouth is and who all of these other characters who only 
who barely register as characters, like all of these people who are dead and who we don't know anything about. And I, at least, I am constantly just, every time I, every time I reread the books, I am looking for more information, even though I know it won't be there. <laughs> but you've been, yeah, you've been led along. Yeah, that, that, that movement is there. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it shows you how those people become symbols. They're just like little images that flash by and then you, you meet their, their real tired selves and you realize that they're obsessing over the past in the same way, that that's how John Connington thinks about Rhaegar now and that's how Oberyn thinks about his family that died. And that and yeah, the, the Night of the Laughing Tree story is so great because it's it's long and detailed, but it really doesn't give all that much away. It just hints at a, at a lot of stuff that was probably going on but it's like it's a fairy tale for a kid, and it all goes over Bran's head. That's like that's my like my favorite part when Bran goes, "Well, that was interesting, but you know, should have been less kissing, more fighting." Anyway, whoosh. kissing book, right? Exactly. There, exactly. One hundred percent. The Princess Bride moment where you, you you get that sense of um of the fluidity of of story and how it changes over time. And and Jojen realizes though the brand has never heard the story before, and even that was a decision on Ned's part to withhold it because it 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 might give away too much. You're, yeah, it's great. It's like in-universe analysis. Yeah. Oh, like I have to admit, the entire like being as I I started off my first reading, I have always kind of resented Ned. I'm like, dude, why did you not just tell her? Right. Well, and that's and that's uh. So much of what's frustrating about looking at your own past or the collective past is just their secrets and mysteries that you're just never, ever. The more you look, there's, there's more of them. Like, you know, your your enlightenment doesn't necessarily, you know, bring you more truth. It just makes you realize uh, how many mysteries there are. And that's and that's just an inherently frustrating experience. I think it's just whether whether you embrace it or, or whether you don't, I guess. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, I, I do not know that we are ever going to get a clear answer from George as to what happened. I, I'm not. not necessarily convinced that, the, I'm not necessarily convinced that he's going to give us an answer. I think he might, like, I, that was actually one of the things that was disappointing in the show was how much they felt the need to spell out and spell out poorly. Sure. Um, like, it, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, we, the, the only reason that you need to know this is so that you know for sure that John is legitimate. And then we're never going to do anything with that. Like that, that was, yeah, that that's was very it annoying was, to me. <laughs> it was very much like just getting a, a, a narrative peg into place. And the, I mean, the, the, the sense of, of mystery, I think, is what is fascinating and what's so romantic about it, too, about the Robert Rebellion backstory, because it's just loss and things you can't get back and things you're never going to explain fully and, and things you tell to people who don't understand, like the, that the story, the Night of Laughing Tree story goes over Brienne's head. And Jamie finally confesses his Mad King story, too, but it's to Brienne, who's at that point still basically a stranger to him, and, and she can't do anything about it. It's not too Cersei or too Barristan. Like if Jamie had told Barristan about it, that might have been like closure. Life changing. Like it right. would have been completely different. But it's but that's like history itself. That's not, you know, you can't control who listens. And sometimes all you do is just pass it on. Mm-hmm. No, that was I mean, when I, I remember when I was writing the uh, when I was writing this Robert's Rebellion backstory, I mean, one of the challenges writing anything that's a prequel or even anything that's historical fiction mm-hmm. is maintaining the tension when your audience knows what's going to happen and one of the ways that i have always done that is 
by absolutely leaning on the fact that the character doesn't know. Like even if like, you, <laughs> okay. the audience knows, but the character doesn't, and the character is just going to push and push and push and push. And uh, one of the characters in one of the POVs in that uh, in that particular story was Elia Martel, and the the number of narrative twists and turns that got thrown into that story that are nowhere in the canon. Like there are like because mm-hmm. there are these giant blank spots in her narrative in particular. How did she end up in King's Landing? She was in Dragonstone at the beginning of the rebellion. How did she end up in King's Landing? When did she get there? Did she go by herself? Did she was she kidnapped? Was she uh, was she a hostage? Nobody knows. Nobody mentions it because even the Dornish characters don't bring it up. And so that's one. And then of course the the big question like how much did Liana know for all during all of this? Uh-huh. Um, and all of these other characters. How much did Rhaegar know for that matter? Um, was Rhaegar hanging out in the Tower of Joy the whole time because he was completely ignorant of everything that was going on? Or did he know what was going on and he didn't care? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so those, like you were saying earlier, those are the some of the questions that that brought you to to fanfic. So I guess it's, do you find that, are you, are you, do you find you have to switch between looking at the story as a reader and looking at the story as someone who writes about it yourself? Yes. Yes, it is. It is two kind of, it's two different ways. They're they're interconnected, and they mm-hmm. and uh, I would say if they were a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap between gotcha. them. Gotcha. Gotcha. But one of them is like stepping out and looking through a microscope. You're looking at how is how is this piece, how is this text put together? What are the influences that are acting on this text? What did the author read? What was happening in the media at the time? Um, how many comics was he reading at the time? Like what, right, right. all of these different things. Um, how is this put together? And in a different, and uh, when I'm approaching as a writer, um, it's all about internal logic. It's all about, okay, how is this world constructed? Um, how do you, like, how, what are the distances between places? What are the dates? I, the, the dates thing drives me, the, drives me <laughs> off the goddamn wall. Like, George, decide when do things happen and, and in what order? Um, the, uh, like, what what are the what are people wearing? How mm-hmm. would things change based on different parts of the different parts of the country? Um, how would cultural trends travel? How do um, uh, what comes over from what comes across the narrow sea and what stays there? How do things uh, how how do trends travel from King's Landing to Lannisport? Is it by sea or is it by land? Um, which direction do uh, do cultural trends travel? Do they go from Old Town? Do they go from King's Landing? Do they go from Lannisport? Like there's all there's so many interesting uh, questions that are never addre- that are never addressed in the series because they don't need to be um, to to advance the plot. But if you have this incredibly immersive world that George has created, um, you want to fill in those gaps. I mean, one of the things I have been wondering for ages: where are all the middle class people? Like we know they exist. Like someone has to be selling. Someone has to be selling things. That's an interesting point. And, you know, the the uh, George's, you know, the, the story he wants to tell is about the, the handful of nobles and the, the oppressed masses. You know, that kind of fits a lot of his characters. That fits what, you know, how he wants to show the war in the Riverlands and, and with POVs like Arya. And like he, you know, I don't think he... Right, he doesn't have like a huge interest in like the economic functioning of, of day-to-day people. Like that's just not... And tax policies notwithstanding... <laughs> Right, exactly. I wonder if he yeah. regrets ever saying that. Probably. I mean, because I think, you know, I think what 
what both George and Tolkien have to say about the society that comes next, I think is much more abstract than that. And I think it's per- that's perfectly fine. But like then, so then, but then you have, then you have left room. Like, you know, you've, you've, you've made this sculpture, but in the process you chipped away a lot of rock and that rock is no longer visible, but it is, there's a tension that speaks to its existence, you know, and you you, you can explore that negative space. And I think that's, that's part of what's interesting about, about fanfic and about just any, any critical engagement with the text for sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, that I, that I appreciated about the Thrones show for all of its flaws was that there were certain things that they had to think about, which were things like costumes and clothing. Um, I didn't agree with a lot of, with all of the costume choices, particularly in the later seasons. I thought in the sure. earlier seasons, they were doing a lot more. Um, that was interesting in kind of making each part of the country kind of distinctive in its own way. Like the North, there was a particular Northern style. There was a particular kind of Lannister style. Um, there was a particular Tyrell style. And then of course it all kind of got muddled by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it's interesting thinking about like what materials would have been available. What would they have been using? What, uh, um, or, and, and of course, George loves to include songs. He loves to include legends, but I also think about things like visual art. Where, where are the sure. portraits? Where are the, uh, like, was there portraiture? Are there miniatures? Are there like, we hear about hunting tapestries. Are there, um, like, what about other types of textiles? What about metalwork? And like, we hear about Lannisport goldsmiths. Let's hear more about that. Like, bookmaking. And um, uh, like, I, I know, I, I can see specifically that he has made no reference to a printing press, but I wonder about it. Like, is there a sure. printing press in Bravo somewhere that we just haven't heard about? Um, like, there, there's, there's so many, there's so many possibilities and so many potentialities. Yep. Yeah, it's true. I, I like thinking about that um, with Bravos, especially because it's so different from the rest of the world. And Georgia City's written a lot of stuff there that's just probably not going to fit in the main series. But even to me, like that. So, like George, like that's your own like internal fan fiction that you have. That you know, Bravos. The story isn't really about Bravos. You can't spend too much time on it. But it's just this this glimpse. You know, this half hidden glimpse. He, you can tell that he just he really loves spending time in Bravos. Like he's. It's one of those where he's built up the culture and the it's such a wonderful it's such a wonderful setting and he's done so much with it and um, I it's one of those where I, every now and again I get to uh, I get to write I, I allow myself to write stuff that's set in Bravo and it's such a fun time um, just because uh, I can really indulge and like let's be very Renaissance Italy about all of this and yeah just, that's what makes it different that's embrace cool. that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, that that exploration, I think, is, is just wonderful. And especially, you know, uh, as we, as the, the endless wait for the next book stretches out. And I've just read so much more ab- about, ab- I've read just so, so much more about George's universe and set in George's universe. And I've read, read his exact words of late. So I always feel like when I get to the winds of winter, if it's, if it's going to feel like just another narrative, you know what I mean? It's just going to feel like just, a, just another part of the canon by the time we get there. It's going to be so interesting if and when we get it to watch watch the real quote unquote real story kind of intrude on everything we've done. That's just going to be fascinating. Cause I, I remember when dance came out and, and yeah. that wasn't even that long after feast, but things were already heating up by then. That's true. And since then we've had the show and so many, such an explosion of the fandom. Yeah. That's going to be just so intellectually fascinating, even beyond the primary pleasure of just having the book, like just, you know, that watching the canon transform overnight, is just going to feel 
it's going to feel wild. And I, uh, I love knowing, I love knowing so many people in the fandom who can appreciate that too. I am waiting for the winds of winter and I have been waiting for a very long time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and I, and it's one of those things where like, I know the first time I read it, it's going to be just this, it's going to be catharsis in the Aristotelian sense. I will be exhausted by the end of it. Um, it will take something out of you. Yes, absolutely. It, it absolutely will. Like a dance definitely did. I remember getting mm-hmm. to the end of that book and just, and of course it, once you get to, to those last couple of chapters of dance, there's it's hurtling towards this conclusion and then you, True. and it ends, it just stops and you're like, wait, what? No. Exactly. I remember that feeling too. And then um, it's going to be like that, that, exhaustion and then the sense of a bunch of questions being answered and and then a euphoria and then what i want to see is then we're going to go right back to it right back to the theory mill so what does it say about a dream of spring what are the questions left over how can we take and then i I just when are you going to write a dream we're going to get right back into it and that moment of transition i think is going to be also also a wonderful thing to witness It, it will be absolutely wonderful to witness it'll be wonderful and terrifying at the same time well put wonder and terror as torch likes to write it's gonna be the age of wonder and terror that's perfect that's perfect oh man (laughs) well i think that is uh about gonna wrap us up for this episode uh thank you so much for coming on this was really a delight i was looking forward to it and it was even even better than i hope so thank you well thank you so much i am uh i had a great time so where can people uh find your stuff online well, um, I can be found in a number of places, uh, depending on what you're looking for. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, KVM Finn. Um, and there you can, I mostly tweet about just academic stuff or just random things that happen to me. Um, and uh, I can also be found at kvmfin.wordpress.com, which is my very not very well updated professional <laughs> website. All of the, the blog is not updated, but everything else is. Um, so it's got a list of my publications where you can find things I've written and that sort of thing. Um, I can also be found on Tumblr as Poor Shadows PPC. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening, folks. Uh, as always, we really appreciate you checking in every week while Jeff is gone. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access to our episodes, bonus episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week.